everyone. Welcome back to American Billiard Radio. Today is Thursday, May 2nd, and I know two episodes in two weeks. It's, it's shocking. I, I don't know what's going on. I still think it's leftover energy from the the enthusiasm that, that Nate was showing from the Cue It Up podcast. Before I get started, uh, Nate has, again, two episodes of the Cue It Up podcast this week, and I know that the one he dropped today uh, Thursday, May 2nd, is a three-way conversation that he and Mark Wilson and I had about the U.S. Open and the streaming, kind of expanding on my little rant from last week. I'm not going to get too much into that rant right now. Um, today's episode is all about the U.S. Open, though. We have a U.S. Open champion. I talked to Jay Helfert this week. Jay was at the U.S. Open helping to cover it for AZ Billiards, and honestly, Jay's been at the U.S. Open year after year, and he's ran tournaments and promoted tournaments and played in tournaments. And really, he has much more experience in tournaments than, well, than I possibly have. Before we get to that, though, we have a couple winners. Uh, Kevin Cheng won the WPA Players Championship. That was the $50,000 event that took place just before the U.S. Open. Carlo Beato took second. Yu Lung Chang took third in this event, and he also took third in the U.S. Open, which that's a pretty good finish for two third-place finishes. He ended up with 17000 in prize money. Kevin Chang won 10000 for first, and Carlo Beato won 7000 for second. Uh, Johan Chua finished tied with Yu Lung Chang for third place. Now, while that event was kind of a... A lead-in to the U.S. Open, I understand that that's not necessarily going to be the case forever. Um, there's already talk of a second event, and the WPA doesn't know when or where they will schedule that, but I guess they're not stressing over making sure that it takes place before another major tournament. As far as major tournaments go, Joshua Filler won the U.S. Open for for anyone who didn't watch it happen online. Uh, he defeated Wu Shasheng in the finals. Wu was Wu was down five racks, and all the talk was the five racks that he had broken ran 15 years ago when he won the World Nine Ball Championship. He won two and broke the third rack, left himself jacked up over a four ball, and... When he got into his stance to address the cue ball, he tapped the four. He knew what he did. Nigel Reese knew what he did. Uh, Wu stepped away from the shot. Nigel called the foul, and Filler ran out. Don't in any way think, though, that Filler backed into that title. Yeah, he got a couple of rolls, but everybody's going to get rolls. You're not going to win a tournament like that without getting a roll here and there. And I would be willing to bet that there were other players who got rolls against him, too. Uh, Joshua was a very deserving champion. He played great. He now holds the World Nine Ball Championship and the U.S. Open Nine Ball Championship. Like uh, Jay mentions in the interview, it's the first time that anyone has done that since Earl Strickland a long, long, long time ago. Filler is certainly the front runner for Player of the Year, but we've got a lot more events to be played. We had a, a little. It was a challenge match. It wasn't necessarily an action match. Shane Van Boning played Jung Lin Chang. Chang had a huge lead after day one of this event. It was an overall race to 50. 
So when one of the players got to 25 on day one, they stopped it for the night. They came back the second night. Now, the second night was last night. Shane made a huge comeback. I know at one time, Chang was ahead 21-4. to four. Uh, I don't know the final score as of day one. I want to say it was like 25-11, something like that. Uh, Shane made a comeback, but Chang held on 50-43. to 43. So that earns... Chang entry into the tournament that was talked about on last week's show, the $20,000 tournament that'll take place. I believe they said it was a week after Derby City. Also, I don't think it was yesterday, maybe it was the day before, but it, either way, uh, it was announced that on August 1st, Justin Bergman will face Shane Van Boning. That will be on Pool Action TV. It takes place at Club B Billiards in Wichita, Kansas. 10 ball race to 25, best of five sets, one set per day. So it could go three sets, it could go five sets. It's a $20,000 entry per side, so 40000 in the middle. Again, that's August 1st. I'm going to put it on your calendar now, at least the first, second, and third. Justin Bergman, Shane Van Boning, Pool Action TV. So like I said, I sat down with Jay Helfert this week. We talked mainly about the U.S. Open, talked a little bit about his books, and he even mentioned that he's got a tournament again that he's working on. So without further ado, I give you Toupee Jay, Jay Helfert. I'm very proud now to be joined from California. Uh, how long have you been back in California from uh, the end of the Open? Three days. Only three, three days. days. Still fresh in your mind? Oh, yeah. I won't forget this one, not for a <laughs> lifetime. For people who don't recognize the voice, I'm talking to Jay Helfert today. Jay, you have been a part of pool, what, three decades? Four decades? Yeah, go try four. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, I've been, uh, I first refereed straight pool tournaments in the early 70s, and I became a dir tournament director in the early 80s. So that's, uh, uh, yeah, I've been directing tournaments for about 35 years, although I, I stopped doing that two and a half years ago. But I still get involved, you know, as a writer uh, and, and uh, uh, sometimes commentator. And speaking of writing, uh, hopefully I'm not dragging you away from the hard work you're doing on Pool Wars 3. <laughs> yeah, I'm working real hard at it. <laughs> you're, it's funny you say that, Mike, because... Every time, like at this tournament, the U.S. Open, a dozen people must have come up up to me and said, I got both your books. When's the next one coming out? And Good I don't them. really have an answer. I don't really know if I have another pool book in me, although there is one I have in mind that I would like to do. Um, uh, when that's going to happen, I don't know. All right. My only response to the absurd idea that you don't have a third book in you is... How many columns did you write for National Billiard News back in the day? Uh, not many, maybe a half dozen. Oh, okay. I thought it was more than that. No, that was you're talking about. You're going back way to the to the early seventies when I wrote for them. I wrote some stories, tournament stories for them, but actual columns. It was, I think it was called Diary of a Pool Player. That was my column. That and sounds I wrote familiar. Like, yeah, I wrote, I wrote six of them. I still got copies of all of them. Oh, yeah. We've got, I don't know if we have all of the ones that you wrote in online, but we've got quite a few. I, I put a few, I think in my first book, I put two or three of them. 
you know, I just reprinted them. But uh, there were a couple I wasn't too proud of, so I didn't put them in. <laughs> and for the one or two listeners who don't have a copy of Pool Wars or Pool Wars 2 yet, where can they go to buy that? Well, they can go to jhelford.com. They can get either one. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I've uh, we've reprinted Pool Wars a couple times, and I only have a few copies left. And now I actually have a publisher who's uh, who's wholesaling them out. If you go online and just put in the name Pool Wars, you'll see a dozen different book distributors that are selling them. It's not quite as clean a copy as the ones that I produce. And, of course, it doesn't have my autograph on it, but uh, um, there will always be copies of that. More Pool Wars, I still have many of those. I haven't done. I haven't even done a reprint on that one yet. You can still get both books. I'm. I'm. You know, it's been ten years since I wrote Pool Wars, Mike. And what surprises me is that book continues to sell. That book. It's. It's an e-book on Amazon, and every three months they send me a royalty check, and they've sold twenty-five or thirty copies. You know, e-books, which is nice because you know, an e-book, I don't have to print anything. I don't have to mail anything. <laughs> And did you, I don't want to spend too much time today, you know, teasing you about yeah. the book, but did you, did you expect it was going to be that sort of thing when you sat down to write the first one? Had no idea. Although I'd written, I'd written a lot of articles for, you know, various billiard magazines, and I knew that I had somewhat of a following, and I took a chance, because I, I self-published it. I took advice from people like Phil Capel. And, and Bob Henning, and they say, go ahead and self-publish it. And what that means is I had to pay all the expense of printing, and it cost me several thousand dollars to print the first couple thousand uh, copies of it. But it just took off from the beginning. It blew me away. I was selling 25 and 30 copies every single day for like three or four months. I would spend I would spend a, a two or three hours in my office just signing them, put them in envelopes, writing the address in, and then I'd take a big stack of them to the post office. But I enjoyed it. <laughs> Is there anything that says pool more than, here, put up a few thousand dollars with no idea if you're going to get it back? You know, I wanted to put it out there. I wanted to put it out there, and if I only sold a few hundred of them, it would have been okay. I would have accepted that. It it seems to, the pool wor world seemed to embrace it. I I would only add one thing: the highest compliment that I've gotten about either of my books, uh, more about pool wars, of course, but because it's it's over ten thousand copies out there now, which is you know in the pool world that's a lot. But the best co the best compliment I've gotten is so many people have said to me, once I started, I couldn't put it down. I read it straight through in one day or two days. And, uh, you know, that was that's nice to hear. I can completely agree with that. Uh, I can remember reading both of them. And it's the sort of thing where you finish a, a story and then you think, all right, I'm just going to read one more story. One more story. <laughs> You know, that that seems to work, Mike. A, bunch, a whole bunch of, I think there's 42 short stories in one and 40 in the other. Uh, one of the things that I think made Pool Wars more popular was that I put 72 photographs of pool players in there, many of which had never been published before. I could see that, yeah. Anyway, um, U.S. Open. Now, going back to... Uh, it, 
and for people who aren't aware of what happened at the U.S. Open, that they, this might be a, a strange show to him because I, I don't want to spend too much time going back over uh, what happened. But in the end, that final match in all of the years that you have watched and ran pool tournaments, have you ever seen somebody lose being called on a foul like that? Not in the final game. Not in the final game. Not his final turn at the table, and he was on a comeback. He had yeah, he, was. he had uh, he had run two racks, and he was and he looked like if he could make the one ball, the rest of that rack was open. And it's funny, the thought crossed my mind that when he won the world championship 14 years ago at the age of 16, he was four racks down, and the uh, fellow he was playing, uh, um, I forget his name right now, the other trying the guy he was playing in the finals. Needed was on the hill, just like Shane, just like uh, Filler was, and needed to only win one game. And I thought this guy's going to run five racks again. You know, he's going to run out and win this tournament. But then he then he touched the ball. And I have to give credit to the referee Nigel Reese, he's, who's a great referee. He was on top of it. Some referees would have been out of position, and he would they wouldn't have seen it. He barely touched that four ball with his cue, but he knew it. Yeah. Oh, he knew. You notice, I was there. He didn't contest it at all. He knew he made a mistake. It was kind of a shocking end. It was kind of a shit because, you know, everybody, the place was packed. There was 700 people in there, and everybody was expecting to see more pool. And it was like the whole, the, the audience let out a collective gasp when, it, when Nigel called foul. Because we knew that meant the end. Oh, yeah. I was watching it online, and, and I just remember yeah. my jaw dropping. I mean, just I couldn't believe what I had just seen. You know, I've been watching sporting events for years, um, and I particularly like to watch playoffs and baseball and basketball, World Series and football as well. And I've seen ending, endings of games that have been totally shocking, like in the NFL last year in the, you know, in the playoffs. Uh, that one no call on a pass interference, um, you know, stuff like that. Uh, so I've seen a, this just the other day. I've, what was it? Uh, Philadelphia won the series. It was tied 3-3 three to three in the last second. Uh, Lillard th- threw one in from 37 feet out to win, to, you know, to win with an upset. So crazy things happen. This was kind of a negative thing, but... It was just, in a way, it might be good publicity and it might, you know, it, it might make for a lot of conversation down the road. Did you see that? You know, people will be asking years from now, did you see how that match ended? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was thinking about the entire package, the 15 matches that, that Matchroom uh, ended up with from the, from the final 16 players. They had everything. I mean, they had Wu with that that huge set against Can, where Can never made a ball. Right. They had Chang coming back from nine three down to beat Lou. I mean, Matchroom couldn't be much happier with the product they got out of this final sixteen, could they? As far as I'm concerned, Mike, that was the best presentation of professional pool on television I've ever seen. I've ever witnessed the fact that there were fifteen full length matches. No short matches, no races to five, race to seven. These were full-length matches, races to 11, and they were all good players. And like you just said, there were exciting things in every match. For all those people 
who claim that, oh, nine balls too easy for these good players, it's all break and run, watch these matches. You're going to see so many games with all kinds of twists and turns, good safeties, good kick shots, good jump shots, and some that they failed on. But it was not all break and run. They were, the diamond tables were tough tables, and a lot of times they had to play safe and they had to kick at balls. Um, it, and, and to top it off, they were a good-looking group of guys. They didn't look, nobody looked disheveled. Nobody looked out of shape. They looked like a bunch of athletes, most of them young. Most of them are in their twenties or early thirties, so I think it was a. Uh, I think I think that show was a will turn out to be a big plus. Those shows will turn out to be a big plus for the game of pool. You know, you mentioned that all of the players were were physically fit and they were young. Do you think that is the result from the format on the first three days, where the players had to play so many matches? Do you think that? the older players who might not have the kind of uh, stamina stamina that's the word i was looking for the kind of stamina that you need for that do you think it eliminated those players i don't know if it eliminated them but i'll tell you what you take you take a look around at the best players today and they're pretty fit they're athletes um because to play in any of these major tournaments, I don't care if it's 128 players or, or 256 players, you're going to have to play a lot of matches, and they're long matches. It's grueling. And um, you might stand up real good for a match or two, but after you played three matches in one day, you're going to be worn out unless you're in good shape. I mean, most of the top players that I'm, that I'm familiar with are doing some kind of workout. Almost every day, they go to the gym for an hour in the early in the morning. That kind of thing. Being fit is, in my mind, when I hear that, I think of the European players and how they consider themselves athletes. Do you think seeing more of that is the result of the success that we've seen from European players? I think it. I think it's really um, because the level of competition in professional pool is the highest I've ever seen in my lifetime. Um, if you want to have a chance at any of these major tournaments and win that serious money like forty or fifty thousand dollars fifty thousand last week at the u s open um you've got to do everything right you've got to lead basically a holistic lifestyle lifestyle excuse me you've got to get proper rest you've got to eat proper diet you've got to get exercise it's not just hitting balls on the table for three or four hours every day that's only one part of it and I would consider that a good thing. It is a good thing. So speaking of, of top European players, and, and keeping in mind, of course, that if they brought back all 256 players next week, there's no reason why we would have the same winner. But with that in mind, from what you saw, is Joshua Filler the best player in the world right now? Well, I, that question came up on AZ Billiards. I, I don't know if you saw that thread. And I said, there is no one best player in the world. Professional pool is at such a high level of, uh, of competitiveness right now. There's at least any one of a dozen to two dozen players that could win any major tournament. Um, the fact that Joshua Filler has won the world nine ball and the U.S. Open back-to-back is amazing. The last time anybody held the, both those tiles was, was I looked it up, Earl Strickland in 1994. He held the world nine ball in, in the uh, U.S. Open title at the same time. So it ain't easy to do. And, it, and if anything, it's a lot harder now than it was in Earl's day. 
course, Earl had tough competition too, but uh, um, Joshua Filler is certainly one of the best players. I'd put him in the top ten, maybe even in the top five. But is he going to win every major tournament? No way. No way. There's too many guys that can beat him, including Wu. Wu had a chance to come back. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm completely convinced if he doesn't foul on that one ball, he's out that rack. Yeah, he's out that rack. It's 12 to 11, and he's breaking. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was the, the freak of the draw or the luck of the draw in the final 16 that uh, Jason Shaw had to play filler first round of the round of 16, and uh, Shane Van Boning had to play Wu Cha Ching. You know, it's just either one of those could have well been a final match. In fact, um, if, let's say, Jason Shaw would have beat Filler or Shane Van Boning would have beat Wu, it might have been them in the finals. And they might, one of them might have won the tournament. There, there's, it, it's, you know, that old saying on any given day. The, at that level of play, if, the, if, if Filler played somebody like Jason Shaw five times, Maybe he'd win two, maybe he'd win three, but he's not going to beat him every time. And Wu Cha Ching is not going to beat Shane every time. No, I'm going to I'm going to take that idea and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Now I'm asking for your opinion, considering how many players there are who are capable of winning a title like this. Shane is tied right now with Earl with five wins. Does Shane break his record in his career? I think so. Shane is 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 that dominant. And and he's already got the history. He's already got the pedigree. I watch Shane play every match, you know, at least at the the, the, the latter stages of the tournament. Um, no, actually, I watched him play every match because I watched online when it was free on streaming. And Shane is at the peak of his game right now. He's probably playing better pool right now than he has at any time in his life. And, um, you know, he's only 36 years old, so he's in the prime of his career. And... Uh, Shane is um, is kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, he's used to winning the big money, and he likes it. He, he's he's uh, he's a pretty savvy investor, and uh, he get he gets up for the majors. Those are the uh, tournaments he really looks at, you know gets gets uh, all you know prepped up for, and uh, he wants to win, and he he will. He, I have no doubt that he'll at least win one more U.S. Open. In fact, I'd be totally surprised if he doesn't. He's not going to be a Tiger Woods and disappear for 10 years. He's going to be there every year. And uh, um, he was one of the favorites this year, no question about it. I'd put him in the top five. Um, Filler, we don't know what's going to happen with him. I mean, he's been he's, – it's unusual to see a player as young as him starting at 19 two years ago already achieve what he's done – can he continue, or will he get burned out after a few years? I don't know, but uh, he's on his way to having a Hall of Fame career. Oh, sure. I mean, there's guys in the Hall of Fame who haven't won the, the U.S. Open and the World Nine Ball in the same year. There's quite a few of them. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, we look at the, at the final field, and Shane was the, the top finishing American player. And, you know, it's easy to look at that and say, oh, we only had one American in the top 16. But if you go a little further down, are we looking at it the wrong way? Should we be looking at it as we only had one American in the final 16, or should we be saying we had four Americans in the final 24? That's the way I'd look at it. I was encouraged by how well some of the other American players did. Um, 
my belief, Mike, has always been if the money gets up there, some guys are going to come out of the woodwork. And it would – I see having increased prize money as the biggest inducement to get young men and women into playing the game of pool. Um, why did all these young athletes play baseball, basketball, and football? Because they can, they, can, they can win millions of dollars. They can make millions of dollars in golf or tennis. They can literally you know, make millions of dollars in their career. In pool, you can't. If you make a million dollars in your career in pool, you've had a successful career. Only a handful have made as much as $2 million in their career. Shane's one of them. Shane's already won over $2 million in his career over the last uh, you know, 11 years. Um, but it, it, uh, my point is, if there were more tournaments like this, and I'm encouraged by the fact that this year there's more big tournaments in the United States than there's been in 15 years. I mean, with the international nine ball that Pat Fleming puts on, this one, the world ten ball coming up in August over in, uh, back in Vegas, other tournaments that Mark Griffin's putting on, we got Derby City. There's at least a half dozen opportunities for a player to win thirty, forty, or fifty thousand dollars. If we could add about six more to that and have one a month, now you really have a tour that would be pretty interesting for a young guy that wants to get into pool. Yeah, um, you know I. A lot of people look at it and say, well, you know, matchroom is going to is going to be what saves the game. You know, we don't necessarily have to just say here, matchroom, take the ball. You run with it. We're just going to sit on the sidelines and watch. I mean, now's a great time for promoters to get into the game. Yeah, I'm encouraged by the new events that are taking place. The World 10 Ball in the United States in Las Vegas, the International Open in Norfolk, Um this, is, this has been the yet best year for professional pool um, in this country since the early 2000s. So, um, I, listen, I'm encouraged to add an event of my own, and uh, I'm not going to get into too much detail right now because I don't have a date and a location, but when I do, you will be one of the first to know about it. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. I was going to ask you if you knew any promoters from the 70s that might look to get back into promoting. Well, I started promoting in the 80s, but uh, so, yeah, 30 years ago. And I thought I had retired, but uh, there's one event that uh, I think should be held every year, and, and it should be held in the United States. And if I can find the right venue to put it in and the, and the right date on the calendar, I will produce this event. Um, I don't want to say too much more now because that would be premature. Okay. Um, let's, let's shift the, the camera on the U S open to the production. You said there were 700 or so people in the stands. Can you talk about the job that Matchroom did in putting this tournament together? I think they did an amazing job considering it was the first year that they produced the U S open. And the only, the last time they did a major pool tournament with large fields of players when they were, did the World Pool Championship in the late 1990s and early 2000s. They've been pretty much doing specialty events like the Moscone Cup and the World Pool Masters with small fields up until now. And to take on an event like this with 256 players, especially to play from 256 down to 16 in three days, was a monumental undertaking. And they pulled it off. They learned some things along the way. There's some areas they can improve, particularly on the on those first three days and how they go about it. Um, they could they could certainly use a fourth day there, and uh, um, 
there were there were things that were lacking, like there was no way to follow the score of those matches. They didn't have any any uh, beads up or any scoring system. So if you were watching a match, you couldn't tell who was winning or who was losing. Um, and uh, they've got they have to uh, learn the hard way about promoting a tournament in the United States just because a player calls up and says, put me in, does not mean he's going to show up and pay his entry fee. And they learned that lesson the hard way, too, because there was, you know, six or eight guys that didn't show up. I think they did fill a few of those spots, but I believe they ended up with four four buys. Four, they had to forfeit for people who didn't show up, which isn't bad, which isn't bad. Um, but overall, it was an amazing production. Teaming up with Sky Sports, who's who's a you know uh, one of the best television production companies in the world. The, I like the way some people complain. They said, "Hey, they played double elimination down to 16. Now there's eight guys with one loss that start over again." I think playing those last 15 matches single elimination was great for TV, and I and I'm I I, I support the way they did that 100. percent I think it made it really exciting. Remember, some of the guys that came through the loser's bracket had to win several more matches than the guys that were undefeated. So they earned their way there. I have no, I have no qualms about that. Uh, but overall, it was a beautiful presentation of our sport. Um, they had good commentary. They had good officials. Um, they had, they, they did things right with a shot clock and and. Uh, it was just a first-class, even the arena looked good. Um, it was basically the same kind of seating you see at the Moscone Cup, just not as, they didn't go as high with the seats, with the bleachers. I think they went like nine rows high, and Moscone Cup may go 15 rows high. I, from what I understood and from what I could see myself, the capacity was right around 700 people, and they filled it two or three times. I mean, there might have been a few empty seats up in a corner somewhere, but... Uh, and it, it was they were nice. It was a nice arena. It was a big U-shaped arena. There was no bad seat in the house. You could. I sat in the top row a couple of times. You could see just fine. I give them an A, an A on this first one. Not an A plus, but I'll give them an A. It sounds like they accomplished everything they were hoping to accomplish with this event. I, at least I hope they did. Well, you know, Mike, I talked to the people that were involved in the production, the television production. This aired in 130 countries. In the United States, you had to watch it on Dazon, D-A-Z-N, but that's a, that's a, one of the biggest new online streaming company companies in the United States, and they do first-class production work too. So, I one of the things I'd like to see happen is there's no reason why some network in the United States couldn't pick up pick up a show like this, and you not have to you know it doesn't have to be pay-per-view TV, but the other 130 countries got to watch it for free on on different networks everywhere. Sky Sports basically farmed it out. Ed, did you hear anything about what kind of viewership they had, or is it too soon to know that? Listen, when they were doing the online streaming the first three days, they had nine and 10,000 people watching at a time. I don't remember any pool streaming show ever that garnered that kind of audience. Um, and... My feeling is, from my experience producing pool tournaments, the first year is always the hardest, and every year after that it'll grow. I have no doubt in my mind that the U.S. Open next year will be bigger and better. Maybe more prize money, maybe, uh, you know, I don't think they're going to go beyond 256 players. That's a huge field. Maybe it'll be a day longer. 
Maybe they'll, you know, increase the capacity because if they're already filling the stands a few times with 700 seats, they may need to go to 900 seats next year. And the seats were not expensive. I mean, I think you could watch it anywhere from seven seven fifty to ten dollars a day. That's not bad, or ten dollars a session. They made it. I think that they purposely made it inexpensive, you know, to attract as many people as possible. No, but I, you know, here it is three days after three days after it's over. I don't see any complaints. I don't see complaints on AZ Billiards. I don't. The, people are not calling me and saying, "Hey, what about this, Jay? What about that? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that?" The fact that there's silence on the negative end is is very telling to me. Whatever they did, it worked. Well, and you know how negative pool fans can be. Heck, I'm one of them. Sure. They'll, they'll, they'll jump on anything. They'll jump on anything. I, I thought that the referee calling a foul in the last game on Wu on just a slight touch of the cue would, have, would create a controversy, but it hasn't happened. It would be one thing. If, let's say, a shirt sleeve barely touched the ball, but when your cue stick actually contacts the, an object ball, that's, that's a pretty obvious foul. And if Nigel Reese hadn't called it, he would, have been a, he would have been remiss. Talking about the production that Matchroom put on, I mean, this while it was their first U.S. Open, it was far from their first time in pool. I mean, they've been producing events for years and years and years. Early 90s, they started the Moscone Cup. Coincidentally, there was a note on Facebook today, I'm sure you saw it, that Luke Riches was stepping down from Matchroom. How how instrumental do you think he has been in where Pool is? And, and I don't mean the terrible place the Pool is. I mean the good place where Pool is. Very instrumental. I've known for a few months that Luke was leaving, you know, basically he relegated his duties to other people before the U.S. Open, um, although he was involved in the planning stages back at the end of last year. Luke has been the front man for Matchroom on all these pool events, Moscone Cup, World Pool Masters, World Cup of Pool. He's been the front man, and he's been like the producer. Maybe he didn't, he didn't have the title of tournament director, but he was the producer. You know, Barry Hearn is the, is the maestro of Matchroom Sports, but he relegates responsibility to the right people. Now he's basically, Luke has been replaced by Emily Frazier. <clears throat> and that's her responsibility now. And there was, there was never anybody that I know in pool <clears throat> that was better at organizing an event logistically than Luke. And he, had a, he has a really good nature about him. Um, he, he, he's quick to laugh at himself. And uh, he gets people on his side. He gets people. He 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 gets things done, and uh, um, they're going to miss him. But when I talked to him a couple months ago about him, him retiring, he called me and told me he was retiring, and it took me by surprise. He said, "Jay, I've been working for them for 25 years. I didn't realize that Luke has been with Matchroom for 25 years, and he was just ready to retire." You've been going to matchroom events longer than I have, and he's always been there for as far back as I've been going. Yep, I met him over 20 years ago in the late 90s in Cardiff, Wales. Well, I think, you know, from what I've seen, it's, it's, he's left everything in, in very capable hands. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Matchroom had a good staff of people, and Sky Sports, had, you know, they're, 
they're kind of two different arms that work together. They're they're joined to they're, they join forces to produce an event like this. Sky Sports is responsible for the television production, and Matchroom is responsible for the for the tournament production, and they work well together because for the most part, their people the the key people have been working together for years. I don't know if a lot of people were aware of that. You know, in America, it seems like, you know, for example, a CSI event, CSI is responsible for everything. Tournament right. production, streaming production, everything. Right. But, right. you know, Sky Sports knows what they're doing. Sky is who covers uh, snooker in England, isn't it? They cover snooker. They cover darts. They do boxing. They do poker. Sky Sports is actually a larger network worldwide than ESPN. Oh, wow. Yeah. Their, their stuff goes all over the world. All right. Well, Jay, I am not going to keep you um, any longer. I'd, I'd say I'm not going to keep you from the book, but apparently you're, <laughs> you're not working on that. So I'll say that I'm not going to keep you from finding a date and a venue for that event. Okay, great. I enjoyed talking to you, Mike, and, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see you down the road, maybe at the World 10 Ball. Thanks, Jay. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. All right, that was Jay. I always enjoy talking to Jay. He's a, a very uh, gregarious person, and he knows so much about the game. Hopefully this tournament that he's talking about will be, uh, will be something that he gets put together, and hopefully, I mean, knowing Jay lives in California, uh, hopefully it'll be something out on the West Coast. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see it take place in Vegas with everything that's going on out there. But again, I, I don't know that for a fact. I'm just guessing. And like Jay said, he'll have more details for us soon. So looking forward to hearing that. That's the show this week. I'm not sure what we're going to have next week. The plan is to have a show. Of course, the plan is always to have a show. But, you know, I like two shows in a row here, so... Chances are, let's let's say 60-40 <laughs> that we've got a show next week. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. I appreciate you listening. And Dave, we are always thinking about you. <laughs> <laughs>